Would you please turn with me to your study outlines and also to your goal cards that should have been inserted there in your PFB Weekly. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you are with us. Now, before we get into our study today, uh, we have a couple of Super Bowl Day traditions here at PFB. Uh, Each one of uh, the years annually, what we do is we pick Bible verses, we retch them out of context, okay? Now, we we don't agree with that the rest of the year. You're supposed to keep the Bible in context, but this is the one time of the year that we are okay with doing that. And so we have a prophetic verse for each one of the teams uh, that I will be giving to you right now. So first of all, uh, how many of you are rooting this afternoon, this evening for the Baltimore Ravens? Let me see some of your hands. Okay. Editor Ravens fans there. And you see a picture of the Ravens. There they are praying in the locker room. Very godly group of uh, young men there. Okay. Well, here's your prophetic Bible verse. It's uh, Proverbs thirty seventeen. The eye that mocks a father and despises a mother's instructions will be plucked out by ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Now, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Ray Lewis plucks an eyeball out uh, here uh, this afternoon. Okay, here we go. That's, that, that's your verse. How many of you are rooting for the San Francisco 49ers? Let me see your hands. Okay. We're in the West Coast. We got a bunch of West Coasters. I got a picture of them praying in the locker room. So there they are uh, praying in the locker room as well. Now, okay, I have to admit, we've been doing this for years, and this is like the best verse ever for a team. I'm so excited about this verse. Here it goes. Genesis 25, 23. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. <laughs> From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. <laughs> like that. That's almost spooky. It's so, uh, you know. All righty. <laughs> okay, final one. We do this every year. Okay. How many of you couldn't care less who wins today? Let me say, okay, there they are. Here's the Bible verse for you and for everyone. Let's read it out loud together. First Timothy 4, verse 8, together. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And all God's family said, amen. Hey, I got a couple of stories for each of these teams. The last time the 49ers were in the Super Bowl, uh, we had a pastor named Scott Gannis, uh, who was our pastor of Minister of Christian Education. Diehard 49ers fan. So uh, Dale Torrey, who was our junior high pastor at the time, Pastor Jay Walden and I hid in the bushes outside their house. And when they did the starting lineup, we went and killed the electricity in their home. Uh, they got a big kick out of it. They got it. They thought it was so funny. I'm sure. Now, okay. Uh, another story for Baltimore. They're actually the Colts back then. I'll date myself. And the first professional football game I ever saw, I was in my last year of seminary, and I was a Presbyterian at that point. And so I was going to come home Christmas break from Boston to my home in Virginia. And so I was going to be interviewed by a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Baltimore for a youth pastor position. And he calls me up the day before the interview. I was supposed to be interviewed after church that Sunday. And he says, Glenn, I've got kind of a sketchy thing I need to ask you. And I'm like, what's up with this? And he says, well, he says, I just got given two Baltimore Colts tickets. And I was wondering if I could interview you during halftime of the game. Would that offend you? And I'm like, you don't know me very well. That would not offend me in the least. 
So we went to the game. It was like 10 degrees. We were freezing. He was asking me the fine points of Reformed theology. And uh, my first pastoral interview was at halftime of a Baltimore Colts back then, Kansas City uh, Chiefs game. Well, now there's another uh, tradition that we have uh, here on Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, what we do, we just finished up our purpose, uh, introducing our new purpose statement, finding purpose in Christ, in community for the journey. And Dr. Nolte just finished that up uh, last uh, Sunday. And uh, so, by the way, if you weren't here last Sunday and you didn't get one of our free uh, purpose bracelets, and I realized that in changing, oh no, there it is. I thought I dropped it off in changing for the baptism. Uh, If you haven't gotten one of the purpose bracelets, they're free. They're back at the Resource Center. Uh, Grab one. If you weren't here last Sunday, we want everybody to have one of these as a reminder of our purpose in Christ. And I'm so glad to get rid of my blue one. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but eight years ago, we had a series on Romans called Impact. And I've been wearing this for eight years. This has been on my wrist for eight years. So finally, I'm going to get rid of it after today and go with the grace. I'm glad, Kimberly's glad I have a fresh uh, bracelet there on my hand. Now, what we do every Super Bowl Sunday is that we go through our goals for the coming year. And so if you have your card uh, there, could you pull that out? And first of all, let's look at our church's goal for 2013. Now, let me say right from the beginning that after I finished doing this, I actually, it was like, these are the tip of the iceberg as to our goals as a church. You could write down a hundred of these. This is just a sampling. And so I realized every time I put down a ministry's goal, I'm leaving out 10 ministries that are doing equally exciting and dynamic things. So please understand, this is just a sampling of how we pray for our church uh, during the coming year. The first goal has to do with growth, and we make no apologies for that. We, we, we believe in, in praying for growth. Uh, living things grow. Uh, science has a technical term for that which is no longer growing. The technical scientific term is death. Okay, if something's dead, it doesn't grow. But if something's alive, it grows. And we grew over four and a half percent, about four and a half percent this past year. We're praying for even more growth than that in the coming years. You'll see that. Now we always have this formula that was ever, and this is not the total number of people in our church. You'll see that our membership's over five thousand. But on any given Sunday, uh, the average attendance is is that uh, thirty six hundred this past year. We're praying for it to push uh, four thousand this next year. But what we do is we always take that average number. And we, and we pray that within the first year of anybody starting to attend our church, they'll do three things. They will connect with a small group, they'll start a daily Bible reading program, and they'll find a place to serve. So that's why we always take the last year's average and put it as our goal in those three categories for the coming year. We also uh, hope that people will begin to share their faith in Christ, invite people to church where they can hear about Christ. And so number five is 2,000 people to make commitments to Christ through the ministries of our church at home and through our missionaries in other countries. Now, this is probably a a too low number because let me just tell you something exciting that has just developed within the last couple of weeks. Ryan Palmer, our high school pastor, is just my hero. It's unbelievable how God is using him and the high schoolers. He took a group of high schoolers this past summer to Trinidad to use the Reach for Life program. Now, our executive pastor, Peter Torrey, developed this globally, and it is unbelievable. I'll I'll tell the full story sometime in the future, but how God has used this to change our world for Christ. People coming to Christ, and as they use a biblical approach to AIDS prevention. 
in all around the world, uh, primarily in Africa, but all around the world. And Peter Torrey, our very own Peter and Jure Torrey are the ones that promoted this. And there are now just, I'll get a final number sometime of how many of these are around the world. Uh, an average of five people read each one of these that's made available. And so it's unbelievable how God has used this to reach people for Christ and for a biblical approach to AIDS prevention. Well, anyway, a film crew went with our high school group, Pastor Ryan and our high school group this past summer. And we just got word that they're going to use what that film crew did to raise money for Awana. That's our Wednesday night children's ministry. And Awana is an international program all around the world. Awana is going to use what our high schoolers did to raise enough money for a million of these to go to four African countries in the next five years. Now, that means the 200,000 a year, that means if an average of five people read them, because of how God is going to use our high school group and Pastor Ryan Palmer, it means that a million people a year are going to read this, either come to Christ uh, or find a biblical approach to age prevention. Is that cool or what? And uh, it's just... It's just so wonderful how God is working through and leading us through the youth of our church. We just spent part of our staff meeting on Tuesday talking about, I mean, the junior high group is, is pumping here on our campus, but Pastor Andy over at Claremont already has run out of room, and we're trying to figure out how to get him more room at Claremont. Already has gone beyond the space made available, and, uh, and then, of course, flood on Thursday nights, and so we just praise God how they have been an example to us in, in, in our faith and in living uh, for Christ. And then number six, uh, $700,000 to missions. I'm praying for a million-dollar missions budget in, in the near future. That's something I would really like to, to see very, very soon. But $700,000 out of our budget, about $1 out of seven, goes to cross-cultural ministries through our 32 missionaries in 12 different countries. Number seven, uh, Minister of the Physical Needs. This has jumped this year from 6,000 to 12,000 people outside of our church in our community. Here's why it's jumped. is because we now have a feeding program, a food bank on our campus that feeds 2,800 people every month. And so we just estimated that it's about, you know, when you add that to the clothing ministry and to the furniture ministry and to the homeless ministry and those, it's about 12,000 different people right here in the Pomona area uh, every year. And it's just unbelievable how God has expanded that ministry. Uh, to meet our budget through increased giving of 5%. Last year, we grew in, in giving by over 8%. Now, half of that was the growth of our church, but the other half was the continued ongoing ever-increasing sacrificial giving of God's faithful people that support this ministry. And I thank you for that, and I praise God uh, for that. And then, uh, number nine, uh, over 10,000 people to attend our Easter week services, 300 to make commitments to Christ. Number 10, weekly attendance to double at Purpose Church, Claremont, Purpose Church, The Hangar in Montana, Mercy Road, Indianapolis, and on our online campus, and boy, I was just like knocking myself on the head this week. All of a sudden, an idea came to me that I wish I'd thought about sooner. You know how we're always giving you tools for your oikos. Oikos, the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15 in your sphere of influence. And, and that's why we do Easter at the Fairplex, because some of your friends that are nervous about coming to church will go to a racetrack. And that's why we do Easter at the Fairplex, okay? But maybe you've got some friends that are even afraid of, you know, doing the church thing at a, at a racetrack. Well, the simplest thing 
is to ask them to watch online. I mean, what could be safer, you know, from those crazy Christians than in the, your own home? You lock all the doors and, and you just watch online. And so I think this is a great thing uh, to invite your friends uh, to do. And we're hoping to double our presence in that way during uh, the coming year. And then number 11, now this is just a snapshot. And as soon as I put down number 11, there were probably a hundred ministries. You know, you think of Purple Hearts, you think of, you know, just the, the list just goes on and on of equal, you know, dynamic ministries that we could have. But here's just a sampling. Help to give hope to over a hundred local survivors of human trafficking. Um, Tomiko, Pastor Tomiko, our social justice pastor, and traffic-free Pomona is something that she has spearheaded uh, through our church. And, and you know what's remarkable about this? It is one of those for such a time as this moments. A couple of people came up to me after the services a couple weeks ago, and they said, Glenn, it's been all over the news that Pomona is like the central headquarters, a hub for human trafficking. And some of them said they had heard that it was in the nation, but at least within the Inland Empire. Is it any coincidence that God put us on the corner of Holt and Gary and the heart of Pomona where this is like a hub for this kind of thing and put it on the heart of Tomiko Chacon to raise up traffic-free Pomona? Is that any coincidence? That's something God has called us to do. We, we are here on this corner for such a time as this. A week ago, Friday, we showed the movie Nefarious, or Tomiko did and her team, and um, it was just packed at, at Purpose Church in Claremont, just packed. And that movie was so powerful, and she was mobilizing us afterwards to how can we be better informed and be more involved in this. So just uh, praise God for what he's doing there. But let me mention again, there are so many ministries that we could have put in that slot. That's just like an example of what's going on. And then number 12, launch a financial campaign this year to eliminate all church debt by 2015. Now, let me tell you what, what's, what's behind this. You know, people will tell you in church circles, oh, the last campaign, a dog of a campaign, or if you're from the South like I am, that dog won't hunt, okay? That's what we always say. That dog won't hunt. And I've had dogs that wouldn't hunt, and I had dogs that would hunt growing up uh, as a kid in Virginia. But people say, oh, that dog won't hunt. Nobody wants to give to debt elimination. You gotta have a jazzy building project, or you got to have some exciting new program. And this, simply doing this paves the way for some of those more exciting, forward-looking programs in the future. But let let me just tell you, uh, as much as our church, and we have very little debt for a church our size. It's very minimal for a church our size, but it does hold us back. It makes things really tight. You know, our auditor, Vita Koppenrath, and our executive pastor, Peter Torrey, uh, man alive, it, it makes it really, you know, we, we, are, we are sometimes really out there on the edge, you know, ministering, but not having much of a cushion to do that. It certainly holds us back from expanding ministry. And I believe this will be exciting. I'm personally excited about it because I think it's part of the conversation in our nation right now. Let me, let me ask you a, a theoretical, hypothetical question. Do you think that the debt in our country is in any way jeopardizing the future prosperity of Americans. Have we had that conversation at all, you know? Or should we be having that conversation? Do you think the debt in the state of California is in any way jeopardizing the future prosperity of Californians? You betcha it will. How about in our city municipalities? We're talking about that. We're talking about in our families. About 700 have gone through the Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University here at our church. That number's rising all the time. We'll offer it again after Easter. And so all of our individuals and families of our church are talking about, man, debt is is holding us back. Well, I think we should bring the church into that conversation again. 
And the beauty of it is whenever you have a special financial campaign, you always pick two or three projects, and the people that are excited about those areas, you know, get excited about it, but everybody else is like, okay, I'll give because it's part of the church family and I'm part of the family, but we're not excited. Here's the beauty of eliminating all debt by 2015. All the boats will rise together. Whatever is your thing, we'll be able to do more of. I mean, what, whatever you're into in our church, whether it's missions or children's ministry or, 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 or justice issues or whatever it is, we'll be able to do it more effectively if we eliminate that. And so that's something we're going to consider launching uh, here in order to take care of that by 2015. Now, this all happens as we individually meet our personal goals. If you turn that over, have you ever asked, you know, what do we consider a mature Christian here at PFB? Well, we as the leadership, these are the things we come up with. A mature Christian is somebody who worships God regularly, has a daily time of prayer and Bible readings, part of a small group, finds a place to serve, regularly reaches out, invite one friend to church with me or share Christ with one person. Uh, you say, well, Glenn, that's not much of a goal. One during the year. Well, the average American Christian, research shows, goes through their whole life without ever leading one person to Christ or inviting a person to church where they could be led to Christ. And so if you just even do it once during the coming year, I hope you do it once a month. I hope you do it once a week. But if you even do it once during the year, you are above average as an American Christian, which sometimes isn't saying all that much. But we want to be that as a church. And so we put that down as a goal. Intentionally seek a cross-cultural relationship. We believe that diversity honors Jesus. That's why we describe our church as about 6,000 people in 10 different worship services in four different locations, in three different states, in three different languages. Why? We, because we believe that the more um, uh, diverse we are socioeconomically, linguistically, geographically, uh, the more we paint a picture of heaven and the more Jesus is honored when we cross those barriers, when we reach out across those to each other. And then the seventh mark of a growing Christian is a lifestyle of being generous. So just with the few minutes that we have left before we share the Lord's Supper, let me just introduce uh, this particular thing we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. Uh, generous, our ways and his way. You'll see the little poll there from research, the four major reasons why people do not go to church. Number four, they are afraid that the child care is not competent. And so that's why we work hard on that. Number three, they're afraid that people will be unfriendly. And that's why we work on that. Number two, they believe they will be bored. That's why our motto is real, relevant, and relational. But we want it to be relevant to people's lives. Number one, you can fill in the blank for me on this one. They believe that the pastor is only interested in their money. You got it, absolutely. Now, I want you to know, I've known hundreds of pastors in my lifetime. And I, I, I have not met a single one that wasn't more interested in what they could give to people as opposed to what they could get from people. Uh, but, and we, but we need to talk about this uh, because it is talked about in the Bible to be faithful to teaching from God's word. It's talked about in the Bible more than anything else. And it's also an incredibly important area uh, in all of our lives. I came across this uh, a while back by Celia Ray Hayhoe, Assistant Professor of Family Studies at the University of Kentucky, and a certified financial planner. Uh, she writes, how do you have financial peace in a relationship? First, get rid of your hangups about talking about money. Money is a touchy subject for most people. It's the last taboo. I like this. A lot of people say that they discuss money all the time, but what they're really doing is fighting about money, <laughs> okay? We say we talk about it, but we're really fighting about it. Money is the number one subject of marital quarrels, and it's one of the main reasons for divorce. And so it's the number one stress producer in marriage, in home, 
in the church, in the state, in the nation. And that's why Habakkuk writes, he says, Lord, why do the wrong people have all the good stuff? The book of Habakkuk is basically asking God the question, why do the wrong people have the power? Why do the wrong people have the possessions? Why do the wrong people have uh, the money? Uh, Why do the godless have so much and the godly have so little? Have you ever wondered about that? And that's what Habakkuk was asking. Now, let me use an example of Bill Gates, and I'm actually going to use him as a positive example in just a moment. But let me give you an idea of what we call the Bill Gates Wealth Index. This is his personal wealth. This is not Microsoft. He makes $2,500, $2,500 per second. That means if there was a $10,000 bill, and I don't know if there is such a thing or not, but if there was a $10,000 bill, Bill Gates was walking down the sidewalk, it wouldn't be worth his time to stoop and pick it up. He'd be better served to get to work five seconds earlier. He would earn more money. His net worth is 400,000 times that of the average American. 400,000 times that of the average American. That means if, he, if, if you bought a car for 50000 and that'd be a really nice car. Relatively speaking to him, that would be 13 cents. A house that you're buying over 30 years would cost him $1.50, relatively speaking. What it would cost to take you and a friend to an NBA game He could buy both of the teams, relatively uh, speaking. Now, I'm not saying Bill Gates is bad. I'm just saying I could use a little bit of that. Have you ever had that thought? (laughs) You know, that's all we're saying. And uh, uh, and so we're going to get into the theology of blessing in just a moment. But before we do that, I just want to use him as a positive example. I think he's a great example of somebody who has leveraged his wealth to something that will outlive him. Now, that certainly is true for the Christian. We leverage our our wealth for something that will live for eternity. But even for Bill Gates, who I don't believe is a believer, he is leveraging that for something more important than money that will outlive him. Uh, I got this item from Peter Wilson, our media man, uh, this past week. A big stir among techno uh, people, okay? Uh, uh, Kind of an off-the-cuff remark. Malcolm Gladwell has stirred up quite the controversy in techie circles with an off-the-cuff remark he made at a tech conference that history will remember Bill Gates fondly while Steve Jobs will slip into obscurity. This is what counts as a controversy in the techie world, okay? Uh, now, here's, here's what he said. I mean, Bill Gates is, is a guy that built up Microsoft, but then he walked away from it a number of years ago and began to put all of his energy into using that wealth to help people and to change the world. Steve Jobs, on the other hand, there's been a lot of interest because he just passed away and there's a biography that's come out, spent all of his time building uh, uh, Apple, And yet it was all spent building the money, building the empire. He only said he was going to get around to charitable giving. Never did so. Died before he did any of that. And so what he said is, of the great entrepreneurs of this era, people will have forgotten Steve Jobs. Who's that Steve Jobs again? I mean, the things he gave us will just be a distant memory replaced by the newest thing that we get. But Gates, there will be statues of Bill Gates across the third world. And people will remember him as the man who, you know, there's a reasonable shot. Because of his money, he will cure malaria. Okay? Now, that's parlaying, uh, being generous, a generous lifestyle that will change the world. Uh, It reminds me of one from the 1800s. Alfred Nobel will put his picture up there. Uh, Alfred Nobel was kind of the Steve Jobs or the Bill Gates of uh, the 1800s. And true story, absolutely true story, he he was the inventor of dynamite. 
And he, even though he was a pacifist, they eventually took dynamite. Uh, it was more stable than nitroglycerin. And so that's why it was more useful for mining operations and for business. But people eventually, even though he was a pacifist, began to use it for weaponry, for war armaments. And to his horror one day, he's in France, in Paris, and his brother dies, and they accidentally run his obituary rather than his brother. The French newspaper got mixed up. And so the headline for his obituary was, Alfred Nobel, the merchant of death, is dead. And went on to rip him, saying, this man is responsible for figuring out how to kill more people more quickly than anybody in human history. Well, he was mortified that was going to be his legacy. So unbeknownst to anybody, he changes his will to leave 90%, 6% of his income, of his wealth. And it was huge. It was like a Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. Humongous wealth. Unbeknownst to anybody, he leaves 96% of it to establish what we now know as the Nobel Prize. And so today, when you say Alfred Nobel, I don't think anybody thinks of dynamite. I don't. Uh, nobody thinks certainly of, of war armaments made from that dynamite. When you hear Nobel, you think of the Nobel Prize for literature. You think of the Nobel Prize for chemistry, for physics, the Nobel Peace Prize. He literally took his income from this life and established something that would live beyond him. I just read online this week that there's still a half a billion of it left that's going out every year into perpetuity. Uh, you know, basically, until Jesus comes back, that'll go out to support those kind of things. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying that we should do. We should, you know, as Jesus said in one parable, use worldly wealth in order to make yourselves friends for heaven and for eternity. The generous lifestyle means that beyond just what we have today, which is here today and gone tomorrow, will be something that lives beyond us for eternity. Now, let's just fly through this so we have a chance to share the Lord's Supper together in a few minutes. You can read the supporting scripture after the points. God has the goods to bless you. God has the omnipotence to bless you. God has the desire to bless you. But here's the key. It's not his only desire. There are life's converging operations. Psychologists call converging operations different things that are going on in your life at the same time. Number one, God is blessing you. Number two, God is at the same time growing you up into the character of Christ. And number three, God is using you to change your world for eternity. Now, the problem is, is that I, we, tend to fixate on the blessing part. How many of you will admit with me that we tend to do that? Okay, I tend to fixate on the blessing part. How is God blessing me and not pay as much attention as God does to the other two converging operations growing us and using us to change our world? Now, don't feel bad. You're in good company or maybe in bad company. The disciples did the same thing. John chapter 9, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, they come to a blind guy. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, the disciples were saying, oh, too bad for him. He's blind. He's been blind for the last 10 or 15 years. How sad that is. And Jesus says, well, you're only looking at one of the converging operations. I'm also using this to grow him, and I'm using this to change his world for Christ. Now, if you meet this guy in heaven, when you meet this guy in heaven, He's going to say, oh yeah, I forgot. I was blind for 10 or 15 years. Whatever. More importantly, God used his story, what he did in his life. Billions of Christians through the last 2,000 years have been inspired by that story. And probably millions are in heaven because of his story. 
And could it be that God's doing the same thing? I mean, what is the equivalent to blindness in your life right now? What is the hardest thing you're going through in your life? Could it be that God is using that thing for his ultimate purposes? God, God is actually using that, which seems like a not blessing right now, but he's using it to grow us, and he's using us to change eternity. Matthew 7 says our Heavenly Father gives good gifts uh, to us. Now, those good gifts include blessing, but they also include things that grow us and cause us to be used to change our world for Christ. Jeremiah 29, he says, I've got great plans for you if you seek me with all of your heart. Now, I confess to you, I only seek after God with all my heart some of the time. And, and even then, it's, it's like I serve him with an eighth of my heart, or I seek him with just a part of my heart part of the time. And so the question might ought to be, we need to stop asking, why doesn't he bless me more, and start asking, why does he bless me at all? I'm amazed with how God takes my half-hearted, pathetic, seeking after him with part of my heart, part of the time, and he takes that and he uses it to bless me in such unbelievable ways, ways I can see and beneath the surface of the tip of the iceberg, so many things that we can't see. You can't imagine how God's using that hard thing in your life, that equivalent of blindness for the blind man. He's using that to take people to heaven for eternity. He's using that to grow you more and more like Christ. And then number four, God has a strategy to bless you. And like Gomer Pyle would say, surprise, 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 that strategy is different than ours, okay? Everybody laughed at 8.30, half of you at 9.40, nobody at 11.11. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, what are our ways? Well, we have a couple that appear to be something good at the beginning. To pray more. Now you say, well, that, that's good, isn't it? Well, yes and no. You see, we miss an important point when we pray. I mean, take the prayer of Jabez, which I love. I pray the prayer of Jabez on a regular basis. It's, it's a great prayer. But you know what we miss is that it says at the beginning, you know, he prays this prayer to be blessed by God. But the first phrase says, Jabez was more honorable than his brother's. See, prayer is easy. Living an honorable life, that's hard. And here's the question. Did God answer that prayer simply because he prayed it or because he prayed it as an honorable man? Now, what does it mean to be an honorable man or an honorable woman? It's to live according to the ways of God and then pray on that foundation. James 5, 16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What do we mean by righteous? That is, we live according to God's ways. That prayer is powerful and effective. Our prayers are only powerful when we are living according to God's way. Now, second thing we do is we work more. Again, that seems good. Hard work is, is a good thing. But isn't it interesting that today, particularly my generation, the baby boomer generation, uh, we are the richest generation in human history and yet we feel the poorest. Isn't that interesting? I mean, probably, I mean, this is the first generation that probably your, our children, our grandchildren will not have as good a lifestyle as we do in the baby boomer generation. We may be the pinnacle in human history of wealth and, and, and riches. We, we might be the pinnacle. And it might be more, you know, downhill after that. We don't know. I hope not. I don't want to be a pessimist. But, you know, we, we may be the richest, and yet we feel the poorest. Uh, I agree with Tom Brokaw. 
about the builder, World War II generation. He wrote that book, The Greatest American Generation, The Greatest Generation. And I agree with him that I believe my parents' generation, World War II, builder generation, is the greatest generation. But you know, it is a, it is a myth that they were the hardest working generation. You know, that's a myth. You know, the research shows that baby boomers, my generation, work harder than the previous generation. I mean, my dad, was president of a lumber company. He was founder and owner of a, and, and president of a, of a lumber company. I mean, you consider that a highly stressful job. I, my dad came home at six o'clock every night my whole life. Always walked in the door at six o'clock. Then you know what he did? He took a half an hour nap. And then we always ate dinner at 6.30. Walks in the door at six, takes a half an hour nap. We have dinner at 6.30 almost every night of my life. He never worked on Saturday. I never remember him working on Saturday. And of course he didn't work on Sunday. Oh my goodness. You know, Sunday, you get up, you go to church and Sunday school. You come home, you eat Sunday dinner. You nap and read the whole afternoon. You go back to church in the evening. I mean, compared to me, my dad was a lazy bum. I'm telling you, man. Uh, And yeah, here's the thing. Boomers have worked harder than builders, but we have less to show for it, okay? Too busy for our families, too busy for church, too busy for time with God. I read this thing from a nurse who worked with the dying, and she came up with the five five biggest regrets of those that are on their deathbed. And uh, part of the list was they wish they hadn't worked so hard. She said every one of her male patients, 100% of her male patients, all said, they wished they hadn't worked so hard. And Solomon predicted this 3,000 years ago. He said, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Now, if our ways are not working, as Mark Twain said, if the horse is dead, dismount. So God says, if it's not working, open the book, owner's manual. What does it say here? Read the Bible carefully, understand it thoroughly, do what it says completely. Now, here, here's the yes, but how part of the message. I really, really, really want to stress this. There's a little booklet. We're going to have piles of them out in the center part of the lobby and at the resource center called the Treasure Principle. And about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, we had about a 1,000 people in our church read this. My goal is that every person in our church read this book. That's my goal for every, and it's, oh, it's super. I mean, take you about an hour to read. It's one of those little books, you know, with, uh, you know, just you fly through. It's one of those tiny little books. Uh, takes about an hour to read, and it's, it's riveting. Just one great story after another, one great illustration after another. Really a, just a, a phenomenal little book. And so if you have not read this, I really encourage you to pick it up. A suggested donation of $5. Don't worry. If you can't pay it, somebody else in line can, will be able to cover it with 10 bucks. Or if it comes up short, you know what? Uh, Pastor Jay will cover the difference. If we, if we come up short on that, it's just fine. Uh, no, actually, I will. I, I promise. I will personally make up the difference between any of that that, that happens. Just don't worry about paying for it. Just pick it up. We want this in the hands of everybody. If you can't afford it, just still, if you don't have five bucks on you today, just pick it up. If you've already read this, oh, by the way, there's a DVD for 10 that you can watch with your family or you can watch on your own if you prefer to watch it. Now, if you've already read this one, uh, Fields of Gold by Andy Stanley 
is a great, great, great book. So if you've already read this one, then instead read, get this one and read. I want everybody to read this one and this one. Or if you haven't read The Treasure Principle, pick up this one and this one, read this one first, and then read this one. But it really, this, this thing is just, is just life-changing. It's just wonderful as the joy, the blessedness of living um, a, a generous life.